Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Welcome to this edition of Endourology Podcast. Today, we'll be having Professor Bhaskar Somani. He's the consultant urological surgeon at the University Hospital in Southampton, United Kingdom. Dr. Somani, thank you very, very much, and uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Brad, and to Endo Society for asking me to do this podcast. It's my absolute privilege and honor. Your recognition globally on BPH and BPH therapies is undeniable, and I, I really wanted to just pick your brain and kind of talk about a lot of things that are out there, and, and really, you know, how, how do we decide which one to use? There, we have so many arrows in the quiver, if you will, and it, sometimes it's very confusing as to what we might use. First, if you could, let's assume that we're following the guidelines for AUA and EAU, and the uncomplicated index BPH patient who fail medical therapy, what, what do you feel is the minimum evaluation to determine what intervention is best? And then maybe cover some of the things that you do feel are very, very helpful, but not maybe necessarily endorsed by the guidelines. Sure. Thanks, uh, Brad. I think for an index patient, or for any patient really, uh, we we need to go through the full medical history, identify comorbidities, their medications, any lifestyle factors, emotional, psychological factors. Of course, you'd want a validated symptom questionnaire to identify and quantify the, the symptoms. Uh, a bladder diary, perhaps frequency volume chart for if you're assessing the nocturia or storage symptoms. I don't routinely do them. And then in, in our clinic, routinely patients would, before they see us, get a a sexual function type questionnaire like an IIEF. It's just standard practice, whether it makes a difference or not immediately, but it's for the record at the baseline. Once you have done that, I mean, you can then go on to other type of tests and some of them are not mandatory, but I'll explain our rationale of why we do them. So we'd always do a PSA test and you can argue and say, well, is it really necessary? I think it's got a good predictive value for prostate volume and for growth. And also, I think if they've got a suspicion of prostate cancer, that changes management. You know, that will change what you're going to do and the decision making. So I think after proper patient counseling, we would do a, a PSA test. Uh, apart from that, we'd do a standard urinalysis and a renal function, uh, again, as a baseline to help with finding out if they've got renal insufficiency or if there's an element of urinary tension, what is the baseline? estimated uh, global filtration rate. Then as a standard practice, when they attend the clinic, we do a urophilometry with the QMAX and a flow pattern for the initial assessment. Uh, a post-wide residual, again, that can help you identify patients at risk of acute retention. Going on, <clears throat> we don't always do an ultrasound scan unless there is an element of large post-wide residual or hematuria or a history of stones, then you might want to, but we don't routinely do that. The prostate volume assessment, I think, has become more important of late. I, I remember a time when you would just do a finger estimation and you just get on with it, but increasingly, the prostate volume estimation is becoming important, especially with the new minimally invasive treatments 
And we would typically, if we were looking at surgical therapies, do a transrectal scan, although you can do a transabdominal, may not be as good, but a transrectal ultrasound. We won't routinely do a CT or MRI at this stage. So that would be our quick assessment. The last thing to mention about cystoscopy or the cystoscopy, we would typically do it only if we think the treatment would impact. For example, if there's a median lobe, you want to assess that, then you might want to do a cystoscopy. Or if there is an element of uh, suspicion of hematuria with bladder cancer, suspicion or stricture, we, we, will, we won't do a, a cystoscopy routinely at this stage unless they're looking at surgical therapies where median lobe will become important. So all those really sound like you're kind of following the, the guidelines. When I trained, it was uh, cystoscopy was perhaps not mandatory, but it clearly kind of helped a very subjective uh, notion of, uh, you know, bilateral trilober, ball valving lobe, uh, urethral stricture. How do you, in your mind, say, okay, we're going to offer therapy and then just kind of, quote, deal with the problem once they either undergo anesthesia or so on, since you don't have that information going into the procedure? So, so if we were going to offer a procedure, then we would always typically offer a cystoscopy to begin with before they're listed for a procedure, especially procedures where median lobe becomes important. For example, prostate sizing is done. And then if you're thinking of urolift, say, for example, then median lobe becomes important because you, you won't be offering it. But for, for treatments where you are going to do median lobe treatment, I suspect it's, it's less, less important than to do a routine cystoscopy. Uh, urodynamics is the other one, which probably I should have mentioned. Urodynamics, again, we don't typically do it in all patients unless there is a strong reason to, like redo surgery, or they are elderly, or they've got some neurological dysfunction or bladder dysfunction, a detrusive overactivity, et cetera. Then you might think of it, but not typically, not routinely. We won't do that either. Perfect. So that, that really follows the guidelines for urodynamic evaluation. You mentioned uh, Eurolift just as one example. If you're opting for a minimally invasive surgical therapy or the missed therapies, uh, missed treatments, how do you choose between uh, Eurolift, Resume, ITIND, Aquablation, prostatic arterial embolization? I mean, how do you really choose? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think personally, I'll tell you our rationale of how we choose, but I can go through, you know, in a broad way, sort of, you know, about mist. So you have the non-ablative techniques, which are the Eurolift and the ITIN, and then you have the immediate ablative, which is your equablation and delayed ablative technique, your PAE and resume, right? So I think most units should be able to offer a mixture of treatments, in my view. But I don't think any unit, probably most won't be able to offer all of them. And I don't think it's necessary. I think the important, the key point is that with experience of urologists in a technique and available resources or, or the, the, the cost involved, uh, it is important to give the right treatment for the patient based on what they prefer, what is important to them. You know, is it avoidance of sexual side effects? Is it avoidance of incontinence and, uh, or retrograde ejaculation, for example? So typically what we do in Southampton, we are one of the big centers or pioneers for prostate artery embolization with interventional radiology. For very large prostates, we typically offer either PAE or for example, HOLEP, Eurolift for small prostates without median lobes and resume for small to medium-sized prostates uh, with or without median lobes. 
in terms of the minimally invasive surgical therapies. And of course, we will also offer uh, TRP, which is now increasingly bipolar TRP as an option. So I guess there are three perspectives, and I quite like how the AUA has structured it, actually. You have the patient perspective of what they want or what they are expecting, uh, you know, rapid durable relief, is it a catheter time, adverse events, and so on. Then you have urologist perspective about the capacity and the cost and the anesthesia and, and the ease of aftercare. And then you have the hospital or the corporate perspective. You know, how do you bridge that gap and which treatments you can have? Because as I said, you can't have, I don't think, all of them, and it's not necessary. And that probably is how the goal of the mist should be uh, should be looked at. And one of the, the important things that MIST has done, it's it may not alleviate all your symptoms or it might minimize symptoms to some degree. But the, the, the thing is, it's attractive because it buys certain number of years to the patients in some cases before you want, or you can have a repeat treatment. Because previously you'd have a treatment and that's it. The repeat option was, was not as common. And now you know it's just, Lesser invasive, maybe may be lesser effective, but you can have a repeat treatment as you go along. And I think that has really changed because the patients don't have to suffer or they are not worried about the side effect profile. What I also tell patients occasionally is, uh, you know, if you just get the missed therapy now, who knows what's going to come down the road in five years? I mean, the, the technology is advancing so quickly that if you get something now that relieves you of your symptoms, takes you off your medication, increases your quality of life, and now you can kick the can down the road for five years. Who knows what's going to be out there in five years that might be even less invasive? I completely agree. Completely agree. And and to be honest, I think increasingly younger men, you know, as opposed to when they have these treatments, you're also protecting your bladder. You know, previously you would see a lot more bladder-related side effects from from the BPH, which which is less common because you're offering treatment quicker. So there is an indirect benefit in these as well. Yeah, I agreed completely. So kind of on the coattails of that, I mean, you mentioned it briefly, but the same that we just talked about mist, how would you kind of go down your algorithm of the more invasive, you know, green light laser, TERP, the HOLEP, the THULEP, uh, whatever nucleation uh, laser you want to use? Never say never, never say always, but are they ever introduced as your first line therapy, only reserved for large prostates? You know, a lot of, especially notably two American uh, Holep, uh, three American Holep people are really pushing Holeps for even very, very small glands. I, I think Nicole Miller's, I think, has eliminated every single BPH treatment from her university in lieu of Holep. But what is your opinion on how do we really kind of sort the more, quote, aggressive therapies? Uh, how do we sort those out? Do you know, I think in my mind, when I'm offering them, you're either offering them vaporization or resection or enucleation, one or the other. Now, if the patient is comorbid or has a high risk of bleeding, then the choice is slightly clearer. You're going towards a, a vaporization or an enucleation type technique with lasers. But remember, for things like HOLEP, for example, there's also a learning curve. And for some of the things that may be long-term data, for some things that may, be, may not be long-term data. The other questions, corporate or from your personal perspective, is sometimes people quote, figures from this study and that study. What is your personal, you know, what does a personal series say? What is your risk in your hands? And that is quite important because as you rightly say, people might have just one technique they have perfected, but it may not be the same in your hands. So I think apart from the learning curve, you have 
is a day case, low catheterization time. In my mind, if I was to offer these for, for prostate sizes up to 80 or 100 mils, I think a bipolar TRP is as good. Uh, if you can offer HOLEP or uh, vaporization, absolutely. But in our setup, at least we reserve it for some of the very high or the large or the very large prostate. So 80 to 150 or bigger than 150 mil prostate sizes. And I think the homium enucleation there overall, I think has probably got the best data in terms of the long-term follow-up, with especially very large prostates because the reoperative rates, the, you know, reintervention rates are slightly less. But again, it is that what the patient wants? The patient wants to just pee. He just wants to be catheter-free and relieve the symptoms. He doesn't really, he or she, well, he doesn't really mind what kind of treatment, provided you're offering them and you're an expert. So I think people sometimes forget in the big truth, what is your strength? What can you do well in your setup? And what is your experience? And I think that ultimately should guide rather than just guidelines on their own. Well said. We oftentimes forget about <laughs> what the patient actually wants. That's funny. So with a HOLEP, in your opinion, I don't do HOLEPs, but I do perform robotic suprapubic prostatectomies. Is there a role for them? I mean, should we just abandon that procedure and basically do HOLEPs for everybody if we can find someone with uh, the experience and the learning curve? I think it's hard for me to say I don't do the robotic uh, prostatectomy, but I'll tell you one thing. There's no treatment which is never or always in my mind. So I think if there's a good experienced surgeon, you mentioned you are doing it, it's based on the expertise that you have with these techniques. But I would say that for robotic suprapubic prostatectomy, I would reserve it to large or very large prostates only, not for all prostates. But if you have the skill and, and if you've got the outcomes from before, I don't see why people should abandon it. I, I, I think there will still be a role for it albeit in selected hands, inexperienced surgeons. What about special circumstances? Do any of the following kind of uh, lean you more towards one of the procedures than the other? And I would be speaking mainly about bladder stones, bladder diverticula, neurologic injury or neurologic un underlying neurologic problem. Uh, what about poor detrusor pressures? We know the TERP data would suggest that we might be able to recover 25, 33% of our patients with poor detrusor pressures. Uh, do, do any of these conditions lead you down a different path or is it still all of the same things that you already talked about? I, I guess in the special circumstances, there are two things that I'm careful about. One, are you doing too much together too soon? So for example, bladder stones and BPH surgery. There's a time when everybody was kind of, not everybody, but it was offered quite frequently. And now the opinions are divided. Should you be doing it together or can you stage it? Would the bladder recover? And it's not always down to, you know, benign prosthetic hyperplasia. Sometimes it could be underlying neurological problems. So I, I think that's one side of things. Do you need to treat everything very aggressively? And the second thing is the assessment side of things. In these group of patients, make sure you've got the basic assessment with neurodynamics, with post residual, et cetera, spot on before you offer treatment. Otherwise, you'll end up over-treating some of them, probably with poor outcomes, especially with incontinence and stuff, because that may not be the right treatment. The surgical treatment is not always the right treatment. Overall, I think our rationale with some of these conditions is that the mist, which is slightly long, lacking long-term data, I'd be a little bit more careful in offering mist to some of these patients immediately. 
till more data comes out and i'd rely on more time tested proven sort of techniques for these where the mist can sometimes and we don't know this because we we don't have the specific groups whereas with the others we have big data pool long term data etc so that's the only thing i'd want people about it's not that you can't use it but you have to be more careful using the newer techniques but make sure your patient patient assessment is proper and you're not over trying to overtreat or overdo things because ultimately that might lead to a, a difficult route and probably complications for the patients i think before moving on to my last question i guess really just to summarize i mean what you do is you echo really i think what so many people have in the past and that is you know pick two or three procedures that you're really really good at performing um, and that's what you should offer. And if someone comes in specifically requesting one of those you don't offer, then either find someone or, or, or refer to someone who does them well. But really try to keep the arrows in your quiver sharp as opposed to keeping a lot of dull ones. That's uh, very well said. And, and to be honest, you should offer patients different type of treatments. And if you can't offer it, at least in the UK practice, you should try and refer them on to the nearest center which can because you know arguably you one surgeon may or may not be able to offer almost everything so if the patient is really keen on something as long as they're counseled they should be referred to a nearby setup or hospital i've seen a couple of your talks internationally on uh, emerging technologies and you beautifully lay out kind of these graphs and the, these kind of pictorials of where we're going and such it's, it's daunting uh, do you have a couple minutes just to comment on any emerging technologies that are that you're free to comment on that might be coming down the road that might be really, really exciting or or kind of changing the landscape at all? So the recent new techniques that have come along, such as uh, Eurolift, Resume, PAE, ITIN, they have all had a mark already. And uh, what is to say what is down the line? But uh, looking through what is coming out, I think in the non-ablative techniques, there are two of them. There's the spring system and then the clearing. They're both mechanical compression as a permanent kind of implant. And then on the ablative side, there is the transperineal laser ablation uh, where you have percutaneous tissue ablation with slightly longer catheterization time. I haven't used any of them, but looking at them, they do seem that they're promising. But again, there are not that many studies really out there on the emerging techniques. One thing is clear, the landscape for BPH, which was surgical landscape, was really stable, let's say, from, from the 80s to 90s, and then laser came along. And then again, it was stable with a couple of lasers. And in the last decade, it has just gone rapidly wild. It's got everything. And I think the important thing there, there for me, for a patient, make sure that the treatment is tailored to the surgical outcome, clinical profile, taking into account the comorbidities, and ultimately, there are many treatments, new procedures that are coming. But I, I guess, Brad, only time will tell which will become the new standard. Because that quest, the good news is the quest for becoming better and improving is going on. And that's what we can be proud of as, as the urology community. It's always uh, great to hear you. I, I love talking to thought leaders and seeing what's coming down the line and uh, truly looking forward to uh, what comes out. <laughs> Who knows? I'll probably be needing one of these procedures soon myself. So <laughs> I, I wait with, with some uh, with some interest. So on behalf of the Endo Society and uh, Wolf and uh, Marianne Liebert in the Journal of Endo Urology, I want to thank Dr. Baskar Somani, consultant surgeon at Southampton United Kingdom.
for his insight and uh, wonderful comments on minimally invasive and all treatments for BPH. Thank you so much, and it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Brad, and again to Indus Society. Looking forward to many more of these. Thank you. Thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast.